0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Cold Leader early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts.
1: You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N O O M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: Hello and welcome back to Cult Leader. I'm your cult leader, Spencer Henry. And if you're new here, Cult Leader is a podcast about cults, sometimes Moida, all the time. And well, I guess conspiracies now, because last week we talked about the insanity surrounding the death of Marilyn Monroe. And we went down all the different rabbit holes there. You guys seem to love that. So you can expect some more mysteries in the future. I have some very interesting things that I'm working on. To see pictures from each week's episode and stay in the know, follow along online at Cult Leader Podcast on Instagram and please rate and review on iTunes. You guys, how crazy was Friday's Little Leader? The Casey Anthony connection, the aunt that joined a cult, just shocking. Still waiting to find out if that last story submission was regarding Adolfo Costanza's apartment because I would lose my mind. What a full circle moment that would be. I just love your guys' story so much. If you have a story that you want to send in and have it read on an upcoming Little Leader, send it to spencer at cultleader.com. I feel like we just talked on Friday, so let's get straight to business. The case for this week's episode has been recommended a handful of times, and from beginning to end, it's a doozy. Trust me, the ending is just as shocking as the beginning. It gets weird. And we're going to just start right at the moita. So here's the deal. We'll paint the picture. It's July 14th, 1966. We are in the Jeffrey Manor neighborhood in Chicago at a townhouse that was used as a dormitory for student nurses. It's six o'clock in the morning. A newer student nurse, Cora Amaru, crawls out from underneath a bed in one of the rooms. She's terrified, hoping and praying that the events from the night before were just some horrific nightmare. But as she slowly creeps out of the bedroom, she sees the bloodshed. Her friends are dead. Eight student nurses, aged 20 to 24, had been tied up, strangled, and brutally stabbed, right on the other side of the wall from her. What the fuck happened last night? She walks out of the front door, grateful to see the daylight, and calls out for help. She's screaming. It doesn't take long for authorities to arrive. Jack Walanda, a homicide detective, was one of them. He enters the townhouse and recalls just seeing bloody bodies everywhere quote carnage mayhem in the bedrooms they find the bodies of seven women strangled and stabbed repeatedly in the living room they find another body meticulously tied up showing signs of sexual assault The authorities were shocked. It was a combative time in Chicago and crime was at an all time high, but there wasn't anything quite like this. This seemed just like such a senseless massacre. Their first question is obvious. You know, who could be responsible for such a lethargic killing spree? Did they have boyfriends, was an angry boyfriend? I mean, who would do this? And right away, they know that this had to have been two to three perpetrators minimum. They're all thinking this. I mean, eight grown women murdered and Cora was the only witness. Cora was in hysterics. I mean, who wouldn't be? But there was no time to waste. She was the sole survivor, a real-life final girl, and police started questioning her at the hospital immediately. What happened? What did you see? Do you know who did this? She was overwhelmed. She'd only just moved to Chicago two months prior from the Philippines. She was a new student, and she was a shy girl who mostly kept to herself. Cora. Cora, can you tell us what happened? She's unable to speak to the officers, overwhelmed by the situation, understandably. She starts to talk, but can only muster out words and tagalog in between her cries. First of all, imagine her, imagine eight of your friends or roommates being slaughtered in the same apartment as you or townhome, whatever. Also imagine you're in this scary situation talking to the police at the hospital and English isn't your first language. The girl was overwhelmed. They end up giving her a sedative at the hospital to help calm her down in hopes that she'll be able to, you know, talk to them, give them a little more information. And a little while later, sure enough, she's ready to talk. I want to help. I really want to help. What happened last night at the townhouse? I went to bed around 10 30, she tells them. About 30 minutes later, somebody knocked on the door and I answered it. Can you tell us who was at the door? It was just one man. He had a gun. He was tall, six foot, blonde, skinny, maybe 25, white with a southern drawl. Her words baffled them. A single man came in and did all of this? Like, it just seemed insane. It, it is insane. Can you tell us anything else about him? Do you remember his eyes? Light. They were blue, she tells them. Now, one of the detectives that she was talking to was a detective who primarily worked on burglaries, home invasion cases. So he knew where to go and who to ask when he was trying to piece things together for his cases. He knew what parts of town. And so he makes his rounds, asks some of the locals, you know, have you seen a guy matching this description hanging around here? He pops into an automotive shop slash gas station and gives the guy working there a description of the killer Did you see anything? Did this guy happen to pass through here? and the attendant says hey you know what there was a guy here who matches the description which like how clutch were gas station attendants in the 60s and 70s remember in the false prophet episode with the oda family murders last month they like helped identify the killer anyways he tells them like yeah he had a Boren to raise hell tattoo on his left arm but i don't really remember much else he said something about shipping off to new orleans Before the attendant can even finish telling the detective, the wheels are already turning in his head. He flashes back to the gruesome crime scene, shipping off. The knots used to tie up the girl in the living room, that wasn't an amateur. Shipping out made it click. Could it be that this was a marine or sailor behind this? I mean, it would make sense. Adjacent to the crime scene was Siemens Union Hall, right next to the townhouse. They decide to pay a visit to the Union Hall, and once they're there, they ask everyone they can see, you know, have any of you seen a guy matching this description? And now they had more to go off of, they have the tattoo and everything. They describe to the workers at the Union Hall what they had heard from Cora, from the attendant, and they're at the desk of one of the Union Hall's employees, and he tells them, you know, I think I know the guy. He explains that he was there the other day, they'd given him an assignment, but ended up sending out one of their other guys who had more seniority, and I guess this guy threw a fit. He reaches into the trash can underneath his desk and he pulls out an assignment slip. Richard, Richard Speck, that's his name. On the sheet of paper they find his emergency contacts phone number but they don't want to give anyone a heads up just in case he really is responsible for the murders i mean at this point it's been hours since the attack he could truly be anywhere i think every cult babe knows at this point how crucial these first few hours are handled and they didn't want to mess it up this is still very much so the initial phase of the investigation and they don't even know if he's their guy they decide to set him up they'll pretend they have a job assignment to give him to come down to the union hall and that's when they'd make their move They call the emergency contact on the paper, and it's his sister. She answers the phone. Is Richard Speck there? We're calling from Maritime, blah, 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 down at the Union Hall. We have a job for him. No, he's not here, but I'll make sure he gets the message. A phone rings at the shipyard inn across town. It's a bar. A barkeep answers and then makes an announcement to its patrons. Richard Speck, your brother-in-law, called. They got a job for you down at the hall the bartender hands him the number richard calls the number and they tell him you know what be down here by 5 p.m we got a job for you he agrees and hangs up detectives would be waiting for quite some time down at the union hall because he never showed up while some waited there other detectives went to the bar and started to ask around but there was no sign of him little did they know he was just a few feet away and he slips out the back door so here's the thing, right? Why would a man so desperate for work not show up? It's because they fucked up big time. So listen to this. When Richard called, he asked what ship he'd be going on. And the guy from the union hall tells him, uh, it looks like you're shipping out to New Orleans. He refers to the name of the ship, which Richard already knew because it was the ship he was supposed to be going on the evening before before he'd been beat out by the other guys. So he knew this wasn't true, saw through the whole thing, and knew he was being set up. And just like that, they'd let him slip away. Now there was some movement. At the crime scene, they had found three fingerprints that they lifted. And if they could match these to Richard, it would be the perfect confirmation. And it shouldn't prove hard, right? Richard had a very troubled past, which we'll get into later on. The Chicago police reached out to the FBI in D.C. to see if they have anything on file for a Richard Speck. And there's good news and bad news. The good news is that they do have fingerprints on Richard from one of his many previous arrests in Dallas. The bad news is, it's 1966, they're like, yes, we can get them to you, but it would take a minute to have them physically transported to Chicago. It also probably didn't help that there was a national airline strike, so flights were few and far between. Now, as I said, he'd had previous prior arrests in Dallas, so before we continue, we're going to take a quick break, and then I want to give a little backstory on our suspect so we can get to know who this Richard Speck that they're looking for even is. Colt Leader is sponsored by BetterHelp. Colt Babes, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Are you hitting the gym, hitting the sheets for a little nap, looking at your neighbor's house on Zillow? Really though, if time was unlimited, how would you use it? How would you decide what's important enough to make time for? Unfortunately, time is not unlimited, but fortunately, therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. That's one of my biggest takeaways from therapy. Figuring out where to devote time to make the rest of my life easier. I could go on forever about how much less stressful life is once I learned to prioritize my time, but why don't you see for yourself? Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com coltleader today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash cultleader.
2: Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com.
0: Richard was born on December 6th of 1941 in Kirkwood, Illinois, a few hours away from Chicago. He was the seventh of eight children born to his father, Benjamin, and mother, Mary. Not long after he was born, the family moved to Monmouth. Richard and his younger sister, Carolyn, were the babies of the family, and there was a pretty big age gap between the youngest and the oldest. In 1947, his father, Benjamin, died from a heart attack at the age of 53, and it crushed a young Richard. He was super close with his dad. The family suffered tragedy again just a few years later in 1952 when his oldest brother Robert died in a car accident. Robert was just 23 years old when he died. Though Mary was devoutly religious and completely abstained from the sin of drinking, she ended up marrying another guy who was quite the opposite. Enter Carl Rudolf Lindbergh, who I believe just went by Rudolf. He was a traveling insurance salesman from good old Texas, which, long story short, and I, I don't want to focus too much on his childhood and all of that, but long story short, his mom marries this new guy and they moved to Texas, where he's from. The other kids were grown already, so it was just Richard and his younger sister, Carolyn, that went with the mom. The family initially lived in Santo, which is nearish to Fort Worth, but in 1951, they moved to East Dallas. They moved several times, actually. In total, they'd lived in 10 different addresses in the Dallas area because Rudolph could not get his shit together. He was just the worst. Abusive, drunk, mean, total fuck-ass, and clearly the apple didn't fall too far from the tree with Richard. He started drinking when he was just 12 years old, and by the time he was 15 he was drinking daily he dropped out of high school shortly after his 16th birthday and took on some odd jobs doing manual labor and listen he's loving it okay because that's all he wanted to do he wanted to work Make money and drink. He ran with this crowd of older guys from work that loved to party with him just as hard as him. He first ran into trouble in 1955 when he was 13 years old. That was his first arrest and it was for trespassing, eerily enough. Some other notable events during his teenage years, he was arrested dozens of times for trespassing. Couldn't even count them all. Trespassing, burglary, assault, you name it. The assault charges, I think when he was younger, weren't as serious as they would get later on. He was working at the 7-Up factory in 1961 when he met a girl a few years younger than him, 15-year-old Shirley Malone, at the Texas State Fair. Well, she ended up getting knocked up three weeks after they started dating and gave birth to their daughter, Robbie Lynn Speck, on July 5th of 1962. Richard was in jail on a 22-day sentence at the time of her birth. In 1963, when he was 22 years old, he was sentenced to three years in prison for, one, forging a co check, and two, robbing a grocery store where he stole some beer, cigs, $3 in cash. <laughs> just fucking imagine. Uh, they released him after 16 months. So he's good, right? Learned his lesson? Nope. Just a week after being paroled, he is back on his bullshit and this time it was even more unhinged he'd held a knife and attacked a woman in the parking lot of her apartment building and was arrested a few blocks away and given another 16 month sentence he didn't actually stab her or anything i think he just threatened her but due to an error in the system which what the fuck does that mean he ended up being released after just serving six months After this release, he worked as a truck driver for a few months, but got fired after multiple accidents and no-shows. Which, (laughs) I mean, I feel like truck driving is a skill. I feel like that's not just a job you could take on. If I I was a truck driver, I would hit everything and everyone. We'll cut to December of 1965. He moves in with this 29-year-old divorcee that apparently his mom orchestrated all of this. And she was a former professional wrestler, mind you. And she was looking for someone to stay at home and babysit her children. Ma'am, I know there wasn't care.com in the 60s, but you could have gotten a nice high school girl something, not a convict. He files for divorce from his wife that he had the baby with shortly after moving in with this new girl. In that same month that he filed for divorce, he stabbed a man in a bar brawl and did three days in jail, which also feels pretty light to me considering his past and not only that but I guess he was only charged with like or I guess he was charged and he had to pay 10 a $10 fine or something and he didn't want to pay the $10 fine which is why he did the three days in jail on March 5th of 1966 he buys this old car one day and the next evening he robs a grocery store of all of their cigarettes and starts selling them out of the trunk of his car in the parking lot of the store you guys he ended up abandoning the car there and the police issued a warrant for what would be his 42nd arrest. Can you imagine being arrested 41 times? Like, that is, that is a lot of time. He knew that if he got brought in on this warrant, he would automatically be sent to prison. So his younger sister, Carolyn, ends up taking him to the Dallas bus depot and off to Chicago he goes. Once he arrived in Chicago, he stayed with his sister, Martha, and her husband, Eugene Thornton and their two teenage daughters. Okay, so now we've made our way back to Chicago, and it wasn't that long before we get back to July of 1966. Richard had kind of irked his sister and brother-in-law. His odd need for several showers a day, he was always home, didn't work, was usually just out front talking to teens in the neighborhood about his wild past in Dallas... Well, on Monday the 13th, they decided they had had enough. They packed up his belongings, brought him down to the Maritime Union Hall, and were like, goodbye, get a job. He'd already done the preliminary stuff to start working, so it wasn't truly as fast as I'm explaining it, but hello, it's cold later. Okay, we don't got time for that. Also, it's boring. He ends up getting a room at a local hotel that night uh, called Pauline's and the Union Hall calls him in to work on a ship that's headed out to New Orleans. Now, this was the day of the murders. And had he gotten on that ship? Who knows? It could be an entirely different outcome. But unfortunately, he didn't. He arrived at the dock at 5pm, only to be told he was just there as a backup for this other guy who held seniority, and is therefore dismissed when said guy shows up for the shift. And that's the one that I was talking about earlier. So, the investigation was actually moving rather quickly, because when they called him and told him that they had a job for him to ship out to New Orleans or whatever, that was literally the next day. So anyways, that night, he hitched a ride back to the Union Hall, and then just hours later, well... We know what happens. And don't worry, we're going to go more into the details on that night soon. I think that's enough catch-up, though. I feel like we get a pretty good idea of who he is. Oh, also, how could I forget this fact? Apparently his stepdad was missing a leg and when he was like a teenager and would get in trouble and his dad tried to punish him he would threaten to take away his stepdad's crutches so i mean he's always a little fuck he would have been a dr phil for sure so let's get back to where we were while the detectives were waiting for fingerprints there was a brief encounter between authorities and richard we'll be right back after this quick message Okay, now get ready to get mad. So this is two days, I want to say, after the murders. Chicago police are tipped off by the hotel Richard's staying in that there is a man in room 806 who has a gun in his possession. The authorities arrive, knock on the door of David Staten, the man in question. They wake him up and ask to see his ID, and sure enough, the ID card says Richard Speck. They are face-to-face with the most wanted man in Chicago. They ask him, why is the room under the name David Staten? And then they spot a gun. They pick it up, hold it out, and ask Richard to explain himself. I gotta be honest, he tells them. I picked up a prostitute last night. I know know we say sex worker now, but this is verbatim what he told them. And the gun belongs to her. She had it for protection, and she left it here. All right, they tell him. Well, we're gonna have to confiscate this gun. So they take the gun, and they leave. Listen, if they had just brought him into the station, this all would have been game over, but doo-doo-doo nothing to see here. Richard obviously vanishes from the hotel after this interaction. I mean, he was probably shitting his pants, right? He probably thought, it is done, game over, my cover's blown, but nope. I guess these cops weren't part of that investigation and somehow just didn't know anything about this. Authorities are at a standstill. On one hand, they could just put his picture out to the papers, but they know that if they do that, Without having any concrete evidence yet, that even if they capture him, his lawyer could easily say that the jury's persuaded by the public opinion because of the photograph in the newspapers, then Richard would get off on a technicality. They just didn't want to risk it, so they decided to hold off until they get the fingerprints in, which wouldn't take long, because someone in D.C. had actually offered to personally hop on a plane and hand deliver them. Hours later, the fingerprints are now in the custody of the Chicago Police Department. And they match them up with the fingerprints from the crime scene. And what do you know? Surprise, surprise. The fingerprints confirmed without a doubt that Richard Speck is the madman responsible for the brutal slayings. Now they're ready, right? They can go public with this because they have everything they need. They alert the press and release his mugshot to the public along with a full description and a full city search ensues. It's everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. It's all over the paper. It's all over the nightly news that evening. Richard was trapped. He's like just this little fucking bug trapped in this little trap. Wow. Should I write analogies? Should I write a book? (laughs) Fuck. What does that even mean? Right? But, but, you know, you know what I'm saying? Hey. You know what I'm saying. He knows that everyone's looking for him. So he rents this other little, they called it a cubicle on this one thing that I watched about it. But it was essentially, I think, just like a hostile hotel room. And he starts to just kind of map out like, okay, what am I going to do? Like, they're going to be waiting for me at the train stations, the bus stations. I'm, I can't walk out in the city because everyone's looking for me. Well, later that day, 72 hours after the murders, at a hospital across town, a patient is brought in and treated for a suicide attack. The patient had attempted to slash their wrist, and as the doctor cleaned up the wound and wiped away the blood, he sees a familiar tattoo. Born to raise hell. The patient was richard speck and the doctor knew this as did everyone in town and the tattoo had been in the description on the news and in the papers so the doctor alerts authorities who then come in and arrest him seven months later it goes to trial seven months of chicago waiting on bated breath to find out why he did this and how i mean eight murders nobody hears a thing A lot of people expected Cora to not actually even show up at the trial. Even though she'd been a star witness, she had not been seen in public for seven months, and a lot of people just figured she'd gone back to the Philippines. But at 11 a.m. on the third day of the trial, Cora busted in that courtroom and fucked shit up. I bet he was just fucking losing it. Because he had no idea that there was actually nine girls in the apartment that night, not eight. She walks in and they ask her, Korra, Corazon was her full name, could you identify the killer for the court? The once shy Cora walks right the fuck up to him, points her finger directly in his face, and says, it was him. And the courtroom is just lit up. She recounted the events of the fatal evening throughout the trial, how she'd opened the door that night and he had a gun. He took the girls to the rear bedroom. He tells them all to sit down, tells them, listen, I'm not gonna hurt you. He just needed money to get to New Orleans. Cora said that several of the girls gave him money, hoping he would leave. But her, along with two other exchange students from the Philippines, they had apparently experienced this before in the Philippines. And so they're like, well, we're not giving you our money. But he takes the money from the other girls and still doesn't leave. And that's when they knew something was really wrong. He takes the bed sheets off of Patricia Matusick's bed. That's one of the girls, and began cutting the sheet into ropes that he would use to tie the girls up. And he does one by one. The girls are whispering back and forth. What do we have to do? We we have to do something. He first took Pamela Wilkening out of the room, leaving the rest of the girls to sit in fear, wondering what would happen. But as he did so, much to Richard's surprise, two more girls walked in: Suzanne Ferris and Marianne Jordan, who had been out late that evening and arrived home. He was startled. Cora said they couldn't see from the room what was happening, but they heard struggling and then silence. Richard came back to the room, taking the other girls one by one: Merlita Gargulo, Gloria Davy, Valentina Pasion, Patricia Matusek, and Nina Joshmil. Cora knew she would be next. In between all of the chaos, she slides herself under one of the beds when he takes one of the girls out. Gloria Davy was the last victim. He brought her out to the living room and raped her, and she's the one that the authorities found at the beginning in the living room. He'd lost count of the bodies in the killing spree. On April 15th of 1967, after just 49 minutes of deliberation, the jury found the 26-year-old Richard Speck guilty and he was sentenced to death in the electric chair. In 1971, just a few years later, the death penalty laws were changed and he was commuted to a life sentence, and he was given 1,200 years. Those who knew Richard at the Stateville Correctional Facility in Crest Hill, Illinois, called him Birdman, after the Birdman of Alcatraz, because he kept a pair of sparrows that had flown into his cell. He was a loner, and he kept to himself a lot of the time, but eventually he started opening up in his later years in prison. Throughout his time incarcerated, he was caught numerous times with moonshine, cocaine, and other illegal drugs, but the punishments didn't bother him. How am I going to get in trouble? I'm here for 1200 years, which, fair. Though he detested the press and he refused to speak to them, Richard sat down with columnist Bob Green from the Chicago Tribune in 1978, and it was the first time that he ever publicly admitted guilt for the murders. In the interview, he says, I'll probably be released by the year 2000, and if I get out, I'll open up my own chain of grocery stores. Your own chain of- Richard, you want to open up Albertsons? Richard, you're such a dreamer. And Richard did. He became Trader Joe. He is the Joe of Trader Joe's, I'm just kidding. Trader Joe's don't, suit me. He reiterated a point made several times after sentencing that it was supposed to be just another robbery that went south. That was his whole story. Like, oh yeah, I was just going to go and rob them and it's like, oh, and then you accidentally fucking killed eight people. Sure, Richard. Oh fuck, wait. So, going back to Sparrow's, well, when he was told that he couldn't keep the Sparrow's by a guard, I think he only had one left at this point. The guard told him, "We have a strict no pets policy." Richard took the sparrow in front of him and threw it into a metal fan and the guard was like what the fuck like I thought you liked that bird and Richard was like I did but if I can't have it no one can fuck the fuck? Let's talk about Richard in prison because fucking a character, let me tell you. There was a lot happening here. In May of 1996, there was a Chicago news anchor, Bill Curtis, who received videotapes made at the correctional center from a few years prior in 1988, and he received them from an anonymous attorney. And it shows a lot of interesting things happening uh in the center of one of the videos you can see richard speck uh giving a blow job to another inmate as well as doing a ton of cocaine and he started taking hormone treatments when he was in prison which like if the plan was to transition it would be like a sh- like sh- you know what i mean even if you're in prison you gotta live your truth live your life whatever but he started taking these hormone treatments and ended up getting breast because he knew that he would have an easier time in Prison, if he had breast, he would be more sought after and people would give him things, which ended up happening. So he would often be found parading around in silk panties with these breasts that he all of a sudden have. And I quote, If they only knew how much fun I was having, they'd turn me loose. You can watch not obviously all of this, but there's portions of this video that I found on the internet that show him shirtless with breast doing cocaine i mean it's pretty wild also on these tapes that were sent in a prisoner asked richard if he had killed the nurses and he responded sure i did when asked why richard shrugged and jokingly said it just wasn't their night like you're a fuck ass when he was asked about how he felt about himself in the years since he said like i always felt i had no feeling if you're asking me if I felt sorry, no. He also described in detail the experience of strangling someone. It's not like TV. It takes over three minutes and you have to have a lot of strength. He was just fucking gross. There wasn't a lot of information about the other girls, but I was able to find, I found an article from the Chicago Tribune from April of 2016. And it says, Corazon Amaro Atienza has moved on with her life and wants to be happy every day. 50 years ago, she managed to crawl under a bed and hide while Richard Speck met stabbed and strangled eight young nurses after telling them he would not hurt them he just needed money to get to new orleans she's doing very very well said william martin the former assistant state's attorney who was the lead prosecutor in the case she laughs a lot he talks about her bravery and he remained in contact with her what she did that night very few human beings would have the courage to do it goes on to just kind of go into the murders and what happened and how richard was captured a few days later for at the hospital after the born to hell tattoo thing. It says, despite the horror of what happened, Cora carries warm memories of her friends. When Merlita Gargulo cooked adobo and they came home from the hospital and smelled the food, they'd say, it's good. So we invited them to join us to eat and they really liked it. That was a good time that we had. Cora retired about five years ago after many years as a critical care nurse in Washington, D.C. She now spends most of the time with her husband, daughter, son, and her six grandchildren. A doting mother and grandmother, she enjoys babysitting her grandchildren about twice a week and the constant companionship of her children. Her daughter followed in her mother's footsteps and became a nurse practitioner. She still visits the Philippines every three years to see relatives and after the trial she actually moved back to the Philippines and married in 1969 but returned to the US about four years later. She began working at Georgetown University Hospital in Washington and then at the Veterans Administration Medical Center. To this day, she still suffers nightmares that Richard will come back and kill her. She also had a hard time believing he actually died when he did. So, Richard, spoiler alert... Richard did die uh, when he was 49. It was actually the day before his 50th birthday on December 5th of 1991. Richard died of a heart attack by fucking Richard. She said she still wonders sometimes why she was spared. I think there was somebody up there who was hiding me from him. God was so nice. The article goes on with more from the prosecutor who says she was petrified of of Richard Speck, but had the courage to step down from the witness stand, walk up to him and point her finger. This is the man, she said, as pandemonium erupted. (sighs) It's just such like a fucking crazy story. I mean, it's also it's so wild to me because you can run without victim blaming obviously it's so hard to think that like they just felt so powerless all eight of them in there well nine of them that they couldn't run out it's also always i think just frustrating to see how the system fails it's like there's so many innocent people in jail for so many things but then you hear about richard speck who was arrested 42 times for both like kind of violent and just like home invasion robbery type things it's like you would think they would at least have a better hold on where he was and who he was but that's that's not on the people that's on that's on the system fuck the system anyways that's all for this week we're just going to have we're going to end on a simple reminder today lock your doors goodbye Hey, prime members you can listen to cold leader early and ad-free on amazon music download the amazon music app today or you can listen early and ad-free with wondery plus in apple podcasts before you go tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey the wait is over
2: so far you're not losing the only thing you're losing is my patience
0: quickly i see
2: that bing